You are listening to audio from Life Community Church located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. You'll now join Pastor Reed Bradley as he brings us the message for today. All right. Everyone can go ahead and find your way back to your seat. As we do so, I'm going to say one more word of prayer as we dive into God's word. Lord God, we do ask that you would speak, that you would feed your people from your word, and that you would transform us through the power of your spirit, and that you would continue to bring to us the joy of salvation that we have in you. As we hear your word, let us be willing and excited to hear, to receive, and be transformed. In your name we pray, amen. As we get started here this morning, we're going to be starting our second part of our series through the book of Luke. You may notice, if you've been with us up to this point, that we've got a new slide background, a new theme. We're going to be talking about this idea of to seek and to save, the, the purpose of Christ coming and ministering on earth, and and all of the message of the book of Luke as we have been doing. And we started at the beginning of the season of Advent, back at the beginning of December. And so this morning we're going to be going and we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. If you've brought a Bible, we encourage you to go ahead, open that up, pull it up on your phone app. However it is that you are going to be reading and following along in God's Word, we encourage you to go ahead and do that. We're going to be in chapter 3, starting in verse 1 in just a moment. And uh, we are excited to be approaching God's Word this morning. As a reminder, we have followed along and we have seen this incredible narrative of Christ's birth. And not only Christ's birth, but also John, who would be known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and his birth. And these unusual circumstances and the breaking of what in many ways was a prophetic silence that had occurred between the Old and the beginning of the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to be focusing particularly on John, on his preparation of the people to receive Christ. And it's fitting for us, as we begin 2024, to consider, are we ready for Christ's work in us this year? Are we ready? Are we prepared it's something that we often consider as at the beginning of every year, right? We make resolutions. We, we decide different goals that we want to accomplish. And all of these are well and good. But the question I want us to consider is, are we prepared? Are, is our way made ready for Christ to come into our lives and to do what he has purposed to do? We see John's preparation here. And... Uh, As we get started, we're going to start by reading just the first two verses here in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're going to read verse 1 and 2 to start. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Etruria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We enter into here, and the most important part of the first two verses is that the word of God 
has come to John. That John, the son of Zechariah, or who we would know as John the Baptist, typically, John the Baptizer, he has received the word of God. The word of God has come to him, has sought him out. This is the word and the phrase that is used so often in the prophets of the Old Testament. This is something that is significant, but not only significant in each and every instance, but particularly significant here because it follows on the heels of several hundred years of silence. And all of this historical grounding that Luke gives to us so that we would know the time of the beginning of John's ministry and thereby the beginning of Christ's ministry. This shows us the historical time frame and the setting. A transition of Caesars and the governors and many other powers and levers that were around. And even there was an overlapping of the high priesthood where one had retired but was not dead yet and the new one had taken over running things. But the silence has been broken. And if you were a Jew in that time, this is what you had been waiting for. Right? That, that God had given word through his prophets of old and then suddenly stopped. He said, this is what is going to be the sign to you. This is what you need to be aware of. This is what you need to be on the lookout for. That's all I have to say on the matter until I began speaking again, and he had let his people sit in silence. But not only was it a time of silence, it was a time of great darkness, that the people were oppressed. They were ruled over by pagan authorities, and whatever minor flares of hope that they may have had, had long since faded. And it's very easy for us, as we read through the Gospels in particular, that you read and you hear the excitement surrounding the birth of Christ and surrounding the birth of John, these unusual circumstances. And there would have been a lot of stir and conversation about those things, but even those are about 30 years removed from where we pick up. People had started to think, maybe something's about to happen. Something's going on. There's unusual stuff. Do you hear about those shepherds all around Bethlehem and what they were shouting, what they were talking about? And while the news cycle probably didn't switch over as quickly as it does for us today, you can imagine that over the course of those couple decades, people had started to go back to their routines. And while the turmoil of the ancient world and the shifts in power had gone along, People went back to their usual form of waiting. Perhaps truly expecting, but if they're like us today, maybe not really expecting anything at all. There was the idea something was coming. Maybe in the next person's lifetime, but certainly not in my own. And yet here the word of the Lord comes to John. And as an aside, as we dive in, the word should always come first. As people come and they bring God's word to the people, that the word comes first, and then 
you take it to the people. If you go to the people without God's word coming to you first, you shouldn't listen to such a person. And we believe here at Life that God's word is life. And therefore, all of our time when we come to the word and we gather around, we want to hear what God's word has to say, not what I have to say as a preacher, not what Pastor Ryan has to say, but what God's word has to say. And the word has been given to us and been preserved for us. And it's this incredible thing that we, God's people, are not in silence, but are hearing the words of God as he has preserved them for us. The word comes first, but it doesn't just stop there. In verse 3, it continues. And he, this is John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is excuse me, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation. Of God. This is a quotation from the book of Isaiah, and it's this incredible moment if you've ever read through the book of Isaiah that you have a series of oracles of judgment against the people Israel before they are taken away into exile. And there's some bits of history of, of wicked kings, and there's a righteous king, Hezekiah, but it, right in chapter 39, even he, who was one of the better kings, fails. And as a result of his failure, God pronounces judgment on the people, in the people in Judah, that they will be taken away into exile by the Babylonians, the very ones who Hezekiah had proudly tried to ally himself with. And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, all of a sudden there's a dramatic trajectory shift in the message of Isaiah. And he begins to talk about this hope that is coming in the future. And that happens in chapter 40. It's so stark and so sharp that scholars will say, well, there's no way this is written by the same Isaiah. It's so different from Isaiah up chapter 1 through 39 that they say, well, there's probably a second Isaiah and maybe a third who, who writes the rest of the book, right? And there's just no way that such incredible hope can come right after such incredible judgment. And there's more things tied into all of that. None of it is necessarily important for us. It's, it's the same Isaiah. But I want you to be aware of that because this is a significant passage to reference and describe the ministry of John. That that this is the turning point in history. There is a preparation for something that is happening here. And I want to read for us from chapter 40 of Isaiah. It's not going to be up on the screen. I just want you to listen to this. Because we, we read the quotation and sometimes we don't have the context. We don't understand what it is that Luke is referencing or Matthew is referencing. And I just want to read for you so that you understand what is it that is coming that John is preparing for? What is it that he means when he says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God? 
In chapter 40, it starts this way. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. From the mouth, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. Go on up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead them with those that are young. The announcement in the wilderness, make way, make a path. This isn't just anybody who's showing up on the scene. This isn't just a good king returning to the throne of David. This isn't just, well, the kingdom of Judah shall be reestablished. This is God showing up. Prepare the way. The Lord is coming. And the expectation for the reader who knows Isaiah as he begins to read this is not that Jesus who comes after John is just simply a great man. Not just that this is simply just any person showing up, continuing the ministry that God has laid forth as it has been up to this point. This is something unique and different. This is God himself showing up on the scene. And so they're called, prepare. And he begins preaching this message out in the wilderness. And it's incredible because as he's preaching, people are gathering and flocking to John the Baptist, who's dressed in camel hair, eats locusts and honey. He's not in a convenient place. He's not at downtown Jerusalem preaching this message where all the people are going to be anyway. He's not preaching in a place where it would be easy to get to. He's out in the wilderness. But there's something unique about the way that he preaches and the message that he has for the people that draws them. They come, and it's this message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Get ready. God is about to show up. Get ready. God is about to show up. And honestly, it reminds me, it makes me think of probably any time that that we ever have company. And you all, I'm sure, can relate to this, that when you're going to have company over to your house, the goal is to make it look like nobody lives there, right? That... Like, all of the cabinets, everything's wiped down, everything is clean. You would never know that there are three children running around destroying the house as I'm trying to repair it. Because that's just our goal. That's just, it's a cultural norm. We all do it. We got to get ready. Why? 
Because people are coming. And, and the more important the person is coming, the, the more important it looks like nobody lives there. And, and you, you're going around, you're making sure, right, like, oh, all this stuff I usually leave out here because it's convenient. But it has to be away because they can't know that I read books here or that, you know, my kids play here or that, you know, they spill things sometimes, right? It, you prepare. You get ready. It's a form of honor for those that are, that are coming. Perhaps it can be an idol for us, but we're not going to get into that right now. But getting ready. Something is coming. It's important. You want to be prepared. And this is true for us when we consider the idea that God would come into our lives, that God would interact with us, that to prepare the way, there's a sense in which we know, yes, there's, there's some kind of element of response on our parts. And we absolutely believe, and we're going to talk about as we continue in this passage, that there's not anything that you can do to earn your salvation. It's not a matter of earning it's not a matter of, unless you do these things, Christ will not enter into your life. But we understand, rightfully so, that there is a response. That, that when God shows up, we want to be ready because he is deserving of honor. So how do we do that? How do we show God honor? And the people in the crowds, they had the same question. They recognize, John is saying, God is about to show up in this unique way. I, I want to be ready. He's talking about this baptism of repentance, of forgiveness of sin. I want a part of that. What does it look like? In verse 7 through 14 is where we're going to continue on. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages." It's a harsh message on the front end that John preaches to the people. Brood of vipers, not a traditional greeting, right? You come in and I greet you and I say, hello, brood of vipers. You would probably not feel welcome. But John is giving a harsh reality to them so that they can then respond appropriately, that this wouldn't be a shallow or superficial repentance or act on their behalf, but that they would truly begin to understand and to weigh what it is that he's talking about, preparing the way, that there's this urgency and a weight, which very often we neglect. We take 
God very seriously, but also not so seriously at all. Because we assume we have time that we've never been guaranteed or promised. Well, maybe next week. Well, maybe next year. Well, maybe down the road. As long as I'm squared away before the final account has to be given, I'll be good. John says the axe is at the roots. The the fruit is being judged. God is looking at the trees even now. And and I want you to understand and to consider this, to think about this in terms of the fruit check, right? Judge by your fruit. People don't like the idea of judging by your fruit. Well, we can't know. Well, it's not for you to judge. It's not for you to condemn. But it is absolutely for us to be able to judge our hearts and to be able to look at others with discernment, to say, this person, while they may proclaim Christ and they may say that they believe, has the fruit of the world in their lives and no fruit of Christ. And you as a Christian are absolutely called to discern that and to say, that person not following Jesus. And you absolutely are called who are to follow Christ, to look at your own lives and to say, I can see the fruit. And the fruit looks bad or the fruit looks good. There's no neutral. And it's fair to judge the trajectory of your heart by the fruit where it ends. There's a fruit check here. He calls them out and it, in the midst of all of this, I also love the fact that he says, look, don't be confident just because you're children of Abraham, just because you come from a lineage. There's so much talk in our world and in our society about what's fair in terms of starting places in society and where you come from and blah, blah, blah. You know what? The Bible doesn't care about that. And it's not because everybody gets equal outcomes is because your outcome is determined by one thing, which is your relationship to Christ. Doesn't mean that everybody has the same things in this life, but it does mean everybody has equal opportunity and access to God through Christ, through the good news of his death on the cross for our sins. I know it seems harsh when you read it and you think, he could bring, make a stone a child of Abraham. But to me, I feel like that's good news because sometimes I feel like I'm more valued like a rock than I am like a child of Abraham. And I look at my life and I say, you know what, God, I'm kind of a mess. I, I don't really know how much value I'm bringing. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. You're bringing no value, <laughs> right? That stuff that you counted as value, no, not, not valuable, actually. We're gonna just scrap all of that. But I can take you, a rock, and I can make you into a child of Abraham. Don't worry about it. I, I, in fact, can do even this. And this should be a message of hope to us to take out into the world, that no matter how lost a person may seem, no matter what disadvantage they may seem to have started with, that none of them are insurmountable to God. And the message of John is you need to check your fruit. You need to look, because your fruit indicates where your heart is. 
And then the question becomes, okay, my fruit is bad. I know my fruit is bad. So what does good fruit look like? And they, the people begin to ask him, okay, well, like what kind of things should be there? Because I, I want to bear the fruits of repentance. I want my repentance to be true. And so what, what should be there? And he, he gives examples which are underlined by, by virtue, really, by fruits of the Spirit, if we were to turn to the book of Galatians. Things like generosity, holding loosely to the material things of this life and being willing to share and to give to others. Things like having integrity, ruling in, and using the authority that's given to you correctly as has actually been prescribed, functioning in the way that's been intended, not compromising on your values for your own benefit or for the benefit of those who you work for, being content with your portion that has been given to you and set aside rather than trying to grab more. And it's important as we talk about all these things that we again remember the context of what John is talking about. Because we would be tempted, we would be tempted, especially in the framework of New Year's resolutions and of, you know, goals for 2024, that we would be tempted to say, all right, I just need to try harder. I just need, if I just fix these things, if I just clean myself up, then God will show up in a powerful way in my life. Right? Isn't that the message of John? But that's not the message of John. The message of John is God is showing up. God is coming. Period. Whether you're ready or not, God is coming. God is showing up. Christ is working. Everything is about to change. And the context of the coming king who is Christ Jesus, is where this change in behavior takes place. That the change of behavior is preceded by a change in allegiance. That the soldier recognizes, yes, I have worked for myself, and I have worked for Caesar, and I have done all of these things, but the true king is coming into the world, and so my allegiance is now to him, and so therefore my life changes. The tax collector says, I have gathered for myself and I have gathered for Rome, but the true authority is coming into the world and my allegiance has changed to him. And so how then do I gather taxes for this earthly authority if I believe that the one true authority is coming? I have gathered up for myself wealth. I have these extra tunics. I have this extra food. I, I'm taking care. I'm doing all these things. I'm making wise investments. But the true king who owns everything, the one that I recognize I'm just a steward for, I'm just taking care of what belongs to God. He's coming. And so that changes my relationship with everything. This is the context we are preparing the way because Christ is coming. And he is coming in 2024, just as he was coming back then. He is moving, he's active, he is advancing his kingdom. 
This is true in our lives as well. And so the question is, if our allegiance has shifted, if we have said Christ is the Lord, then what changes? It's repentance. It's not just resolution. It's not just a change in my actions. It's a change in my heart first. And people, as they were hearing this message, it sounds harsh to us as we read because we don't like that idea of judgment, but the people viewed it as good news. And in fact, they were getting excited about what John was talking about in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to tie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. We see here in John not only this incredible preparation of the way for Christ to come, but perhaps what's the most significant thing about John is that he then gets out of the way. And that's what I want you to see here is that all of this is just the setup for the rest of the book of Luke, which is the gospel, not of John, but of Jesus Christ. And John points out, there's a greater person coming right after me. The greater one is coming. The greater one is coming. And I, I love the fact, we, you know, we call him John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. That's like the thing that he's known for. And one of the first things he says about Jesus is, yeah, his baptism is better. Yeah, I know you call me John the Baptist. Jesus is the better baptizer. Like the one thing that John is known for amongst all of us, he says, yeah, but Jesus does it better. You know, I'm a pretty good baptizer. People, you know, kind of know me. It's my thing. Jesus is better. And what an incredible attitude for us to reflect on that, that whatever your best thing is, Jesus does it better. The greater one is coming. I don't want to be in the way. I don't want to confuse anybody. Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the one to turn to. When we talk about this repentance, turning away from your sin, turning to God, it's to Jesus. Not to the preacher in the pulpit, not to your own actions or some other worldly hope, but to Jesus. He's better. There's a better baptism that's coming. And in the midst of this, he also ties in and talks about this judgment and salvation time, right? That there is wrath for the chaff, but there's salvation for the wheat. And that these things 
come at the same time. This is something that makes us uncomfortable in our modern world. We like the idea of salvation. We acknowledge the idea of judgment, but we don't like holding them as closely as God ties them together because in reality, they're two sides of the same coin and you can't split the coin no matter how much you might want to. That all the way back to the first messages of judgment, there's the message of salvation that's tied together. You see it in the fall at the garden. You see it that the same waters that raised the ark and saved Noah and his family are the same waters that drown the enemies of God. And the fires and the gathering of the wheat and the salvation of God's people happen alongside the judgment of God's enemies. The fruit is judged all at the same time. Salvation and judgment happen together. And the difference maker is whether you're wheat or chaff, whether you are a child of Abraham or you are just a rock. And all of those things are determined by your allegiance. Where is your heart? Is Christ your king? Or are you your king? Or is your job your king? Or is your family your king? Is your spouse your king? And on and on and on. Is anything else your king? Or is Christ the king in your life? You can check your fruit and you can see. God has not left it to be a mystery to you because he desires for you and I to be able to walk in confidence before him. And even in the midst of this, even though we kind of get a little uncomfortable as we hear this, it's good news. It's good news. Why? Well, because there's a barn and because the wheat doesn't get burned. Because Christ knows who belongs to him and he is going to gather and save his people. And when you understand that judgment and salvation come at the same time, then you, if you are one of God's people, if you are a child of God, which is by Christ's work on the cross, you can look forward to rather than dread what is coming. Because Christ's return one day is salvation for you. It is confidence and joy for you. And so it was for the people then who were listening and were repenting when they heard the preaching of John. That's why it says he preached the good news to the people. We read through these verses and we say, you know, brood of vipers, trees getting cut down, you know, deforestation. I'm not a big fan. Like, does it sound like good news to me? But that's because we don't understand the severity of who we are apart from Christ. 
or the incredible gift that can be ours, bought by Christ. It's not so incredible or amazing that the world would be under judgment and condemned for its wickedness, or that we as part of the world would be so. What is amazing is that God would save any, that God would provide a way to receive salvation at all. And he has, and that's why it's good news. As we close out our time, I want us to consider what is the need of 2024. I mean, it is fitting. It's a natural stopping point as we transition from one calendar year to the other. I know we didn't all pause our lives, right? We've, we've all continued living. Or maybe you already feel like it's too late. I already botched up. All right, seven days in, maybe 2025. We'll, you know, we'll just come back then. Whatever Casey, what is the great need? What is the great need of 2024? And I want you to understand that it's quite simply, it's repentance. It's repentance. What is going to transform the world? What is going to transform your life? How is it that we can be prepared in 2024? It's repentance. It's not, it's not revolution. It's not some dramatic change, right? It's an election year. Everybody's going to say the outcome of that is going to determine the outcome of the world. It's not. There probably is a right way to vote, and there probably is a better outcome. I don't have any doubt of that. But the revolution or the change in powers in the election, that's not my hope. I, I hope it's not your hope. Revolution, that's not what we're looking for. But not only that, not, it's also not resolution. It's not, I need to just try harder. I'm going to set myself some serious goals. I'm going to stick to it. You, you and I, we can't keep to our goals. We can't will ourselves to be better to be prepared, what do we need to do? We need to repent. That means turning away from our own power and our ability and our inclinations, our sin, and turning to God, turning to Christ as the hope, as the only one who can redeem and to rescue us. So I want you to consider these. First of all, what is the fruit that is growing in your life? Be honest with yourself. What is it that is growing in your life? Now, you can look at things in your life and you can say, this is good. And you look at other things and say, this is bad. Okay, but what is growing? What is thriving in your life right now? Okay, because it's going to be a mixed bag in 2024. It is going to be for my life. It's going to be for your life. There's going to be stuff that's still sin in your life that you need to turn away from. And there may be things that are good in your life that you feel like, well, like comparatively, this seems like good. What's growing? Are the good things in your life growing? Is that fruit that God is producing in you? And it's becoming more and it is thriving. There's an abundance of that. Is it on the increase? Or is it the bad things? Is it the sin that is increasing in your life? What is it that's being practiced? What are you getting better at? Because if you're not getting better at following Christ, if you're not seeing that grow in your heart, you will get better at sinning. That's the default. Everybody, the default box that is checked for us is improve sinning for 2024 unless we turn to Christ. 
I mentioned the fruit of the Spirit earlier, and it's important because it's the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life. It's not the fruit of you. It's not the fruit of me. It's not the fruit of hard work. It's the fruit of the Spirit as we turn to him. And I want you to understand, what do we need? We need a change of Lord, and then we can have that change of heart and that change of what is growing out of us. The reality is all of the problems in our lives and the world around us stem from the fact that we and others are worshiping the wrong thing. And a problem that we have worshipped ourselves into, the only solution is going to be that we worship our way out of it by worshiping the correct Lord and Savior. And so where is your allegiance this morning? Who is it that you are expecting? Because I've got news for you. Jesus is coming. In the gospel, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. Are you going to let him in? Are you going to recognize him as king and Lord in your life? It's not that you're perfect. It's not that your house looks like nobody lives there. It's not that you are ready. But in just beginning to recognize that he is king, that he is Lord, and relying upon him and what he has done, in this we have hope that he is sufficient for our needs, for everything that is going to come up, the things expected and unexpected in 2024, whatever happens, Christ is king, he is sufficient, and his kingdom is expanding. I want to be a part of that. And I encourage you this year as you look out, as you think about goals, as you think about the transformation of your life, that you would say, that's what I want to be a part of. We're going to close here in song, a song of response. All the glory be to Christ. And as we do that, I'm going to say a prayer for us to lead us in. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for your mercy, which is new to us every day. And that even, even seven days into this new year, even in the midst of our own sinfulness and in all the ways we fall short, you call out to us, you stand at the door and knock, you invite us to respond. And I ask that we would turn to you, repenting, turning away from our sin, the authorities that would take over and enslave and ensnare our hearts, that we would turn away from those things and instead turn to you, Lord Jesus, the source of life, the source of hope and joy, and that we would fully embrace you this year, that we would be transformed not because of our hard work, but because of your great love with which you have loved us. We ask as we lift our hearts in this last song that you would be glorified, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and our King and our Lord this year. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. 
please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you, and God bless.